Hello and welcome to the Biz First Dev Podcast. This is episode 26. I'm your host, Mick Posen. And I'm James Robert. Today we're going to talk about focus and attention. Why do you love you? Recently, but first. <laughs> but first. <laughs> there is Soylent to discuss. But I got some. Sorry to hear that. Alright, so... I think you're going to be surprised to find out that what it tastes like is breakfast cereal. So you're comparing jizz to breakfast cereal now? No. First of all, it... it <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think that's an apt description of the flavor at all. I don't know who said that, but it has a little bit of like a... a sort of like a sandy... Musky? A oh. sandiness <laughs> to the texture of it. Uh-huh. Which I hope your jizz doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that that would be important. And uh, it, Packs of sand. if you've ever had like that sort of high protein, and it's not really high protein, but the cashy breakfast cereal that's mm-hmm. as much protein as an egg, mm-hmm. that's pretty much what it tastes like. Now, this is a slight coinky dink that you bring us up today. Because I also have been trying to, re- I started researching various um, vegan, vegetarian, I'm sorry, vegan protein powders. Okay. Mostly because I want to steer clear of any kind of not animal nonsense. Anything, if it's dairy, I wouldn't want to touch it. If it's if it's egg based, why the hell would I want to have powdered egg? That sounds just demonically chem- chemically. Well, you might impure. like this about Soylent. Unlike most food packaging. On their ingredients list, all the actual ingredients are listed. Like it'll say whatever vitamin C, you know, mm-hmm. as a supplement, which is what's required by the FDA. And mm-hmm. then in parentheses, the specific actual chemical that they purchased to put in. Well, I mean, not chemical. It's like know. ascorbic acid? It'll say, yeah, it'll say vitamin C and then in parentheses as ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. Or like choline as choline by tartrate. I don't actually know how to say the second part, but <laughs> in other words, they're extremely transparent about mm-hmm. what is what's in the actual powder well the issue is where this where the stuff then sourced from i was looking into something that um my sister-in-law she's an osteopathic doctor and she recommended something called garden of life raw meal and they do have a really comprehensive package but i later learned and i, I i'm assuming she since discontinued soon she found out too that there's lots of traces of heavy metals in there because of where they source their products hmm. they have sprouted greens and sprouted Pumpkin seeds and chia seeds and just lots, lots of spread stuff. If you look at the list, it's very, very comprehensive. I thought this is fantastic. Let me. I'm still in defense of taking all these weird chemicals, especially because the sugar content is pretty high. But they also yeah. have fruit in there, nonetheless. You you don't know where it comes from. Yeah. And you also don't know where your food comes from. But I think if you're going to eat a concentrated form of something, you're going to pay extra to supplement. And I realized, much as I want. Especially because lately I've been working out twice, two to three times a day. Mm-hmm. Like two to three times a day? Yeah, but like in 10, 15 minute bursts. Okay. Because of my heart condition, I can't work out a full, full half an hour without being just utterly drained afterwards. I still have to be functional. Mm. I don't have half an hour in the morning to spend to just exercise, especially because I'm how hungry I will get afterwards. So I'll do 10, 15 in the morning of one kind of exercise. 10, 15, maybe 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock when I, to wake myself up a little bit. And then again when I get home. And... I'm in a perpetual state of soreness, which is fantastic. <laughs> and the what I eat, I mean, I have eggs, I have fish, I have regular meat, protein, uh, sorry, quinoa and, and, and beans. Um, and now I started eating hemp seed, uh, raw shelled hemp seed and pumpkin seeds to snack on. It's great. But I also need, I would prefer to have some more. My morning cereal has become uh, an amalgam of lots and lots of different. I don't 
I mean, I see how this ties into the Soylent thing, mm. but this isn't actually an issue for them because their goal is to be an, a complete nutrition-like baseline. So if all you eat was Soylent, everything would be the right amount. So you don't necessarily have to worry about heavy metals because that's one of the nutrients that they're trying to control exactly how much is in there. No, no, no. As in, like, when they get, a, when they get something, the source of it right. contains heavy metals that shouldn't be there as in if they'll throw in some selenium it's great and people mm-hmm. do need some selenium too much of it's, it's bad for i believe the prostate i don't know i have to look, have to look into this i'm pretty sure it's a prostate remember because i came across this trader joe's bar back in my before my gluten-free days back before back in the days before i knows before you knew you were gluten-free yes <laughs> um as another one says if it's, if it's a trend because there's another article in the new york times about how maybe gluten-free isn't the actual issue and oh there, well, there's two parts to it. There's the people who actually like get sick when they mm. eat gluten, and there's the people who just stopped eating it because it's I don't know, like because of Doctor Oz, basically. But I, <laughs> you know, I still don't think that anybody benefits from eating it. I think everyone, objectively speaking, is worse off because of it. As long as if they don't eat, as long that if they don't eat it, they will then eat something else to compensate for the lack of. If they're just eating gluten-free varieties of, and they're eating the gluten-free cupcakes, you're not getting the point of what gluten-free is supposed to be. Sorry. You're just... You're saying that, essentially, people don't need grain. That people don't need, uh, like, flour and other things made with flour. I don't... I mean, I don't think gluten-free... I don't think gluten itself is actually good for anything. I don't think anyone is arguing that. Well, the, the counter-argument to not eating gluten is, and clearly we're not paying attention to our first topic of focus, which is something that's somewhat ironic here at all, maybe. Anyone who watched Teach You Miss Tingle? There's a bit about irony there, which I found fantastic. It has um, Drew from uh, Seventh Heaven, Barry Watson. And we just learned today that the father from Seventh Heaven may have been a child molester. So that's oh, great. great. Nothing is sacred. That's what we've concluded. So, gluten? Wait, no, Soylent? <laughs> Soylent, with gluten... Wait, so I don't... Are you, are you saying that you think it Soylent has, like, too much of something? Like, you think they are inadvertently including heavy metals, even though that they're... You know, when they created the product, they measured people. Like, people ate only Soylent, and then they went and got their blood work and all that stuff. You think? As, in, yeah, as in, if you have a carrot from China, uh-huh. you're likely going to have heavy metals in that, in that, in that carrot. Because but do you think the that they're not, like, if you get your blood work done by a nutritionist, they wouldn't pick that up? Uh, you probably would. Okay, so, I mean, but, that's basically the process that they went through with the beta testing of Soylent. Oh, um, wasn't familiar with that. But then, uh, but this goes back to my previous point about supplements. Eat whole foods. Just, you're not going to get, you can't isolate it, and the food is more than some of its parts. And something like Soylent, no one where we live and how we live needs to use to eat Soylent. Well, I was just listening to a really interesting thing on uh, APM Marketplace, like mm-hmm. NPRs, you know, um, about how we might run out of, people say, I don't, I don't think it's actually true, but we might run out of food if the population of the planet balloons up to 10 billion people, for instance. And what the, I mean, that, we, we should avoid that. Uh, the ballooning well, thing. It would be fine, actually. I think it's a terrible thing. We don't need that many people on this planet. Well, that's not really for either of us to decide. We sure. live in a. Uh, no, at some point, <laughs> at some point, we. I mean, as a species, we have to accept that we need to that we have reached a certain carrying capacity. Well, anyway, it doesn't really. That point is it's just not very PC. To doesn't really that. matter to to this argument. It's unrelated because what the show is about was about how corn is being produced for ethanol. Yes. And um, they were talking about how only about 5 to 10% of all the corn produced in the United States is actually used as food. 
though like 90% ish is being used to either produce eth- ethanol or fed to livestock. Yeah. So um, that, that's a key point. So my takeaway from this is if we were start running out of food or water because of overpopulation, the economy will take care of it. Meat will get super expensive. Water will start to cost more and people will just eat less of the things that take tons of resources. And all that corn that we are making is going to start getting eaten by people instead. The issue like with food the, will just get more expensive, and people will adjust what their diet is. Yeah, like if steak costs thirty dollars for a portion, people would still eat it, but not very often. That's such a, and that's probably what would happen. It feels like such a crude way of looking at it. Like though the economy will take care of it, but you're right. In a very li- logical way, the economy. Yes, I mean there'd be massive. There'd be famine in general. Things would be hard to procure. People would be miserable. But yes, ultimately well, speaking. Well, since food is your most basic requirement, people mm-hmm. will have to forego other things in order to right. buy food. And then the other things, the price will go up because there's smaller uh, demand. On that subject, EXO, the uh, cricket flour protein bar, just raised $1.1 million. And Tim Ferriss, naturally, is one of the people who contributed to, to that seed round. Okay. No pun intended. What's cricket bar? Uh, cricket flour. Cricket flour. What's cricket flour? Flowers, flour from cricket. Literally, it's made out of crickets? Yes. So it's like the Soylent joke that it's made out of people, which, by the way, I just want to adjust, address this, that it doesn't... It's getting a little old, guys. <laughs> I've gotten so many it's made of people, it tastes like people jokes about Soylent. <laughs> or maybe it tastes like pre-people. I, I thought of that, too. <laughs> No one has made that specific joke, but anyway. Swing! <laughs> I, oh, no, I, I finally learned where the reference is. So I learned swing from your sister. Oh, yeah? Then I watched oh, Wayne's yeah, World. all the time. And that was painful to watch, so I stopped. and like, oh, no, I learned this phrase. From Wayne's World? Inadvertently, indirectly through Wayne's World, yes. And I resent myself for having said that now. Uh-huh. So that was unfortunate. Um, with... These are things that are useful in dire circumstances. When somebody needs additional, if we make a culture out of eating normally, and this is the same time well, I've got on That's the memories. beauty of economies. No. You don't have to wait until there's dire circumstances. Everything is on a sliding scale. As it gets more and more, as, as we get closer and closer to the not having enough food, it ramps up organically. That, that's why it works, and like command and control style economies don't. Because the like the market it anticipates it by it automatically by virtue of how it works. There's already some company making soylent, and when food suddenly becomes really expensive, they just sell a whole lot of it. When food suddenly becomes expensive, it's because we have not anticipated and not have not properly managed how it should be grown to at a sustainable rate. But you can't do that at a global level because the people who have to do the anticipation only control parts of the globe, not the entire globe. This is also true, which is why overfishing is a huge problem. But which country would you want to trust to make that decision? I wouldn't want to trust any of them. Some, <laughs> who, like, what some, organization? Some independent... This is the thing that I've always clamored what, like for. like the IMF? You want the, the IMF to control the, it? <laughs> no, the independent would, body of compassionate scientists. The IBCS. I wouldn't trust them either. They'd be just like the I- IMF. When you make a global entity like that that has real power, suddenly it doesn't actually work better out work better for people. 
The person in charge of it is the Dalai Lama. There we go. Can't go wrong that way. The Dalai Lama wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> oh, but I wish he would. Yeah. Uh, so You have yeah. to have people with very, very high moral, moral, moral caliber. But they know that the whole thing is going to be corrupt, so people with moral caliber wouldn't get involved. They would refuse to be involved. This is a very despondency-inducing conversation. I have very high idealistic views of the world. And I if hope you had a solution that worked better than an economy, then you would have invented a brand new system for the entire world to function on, and you would be smarter than anybody before. You don't have to invent anything new. You go back to our principal values. We had those values back Those don't scale up to 5 billion or 10 billion people. Maybe you don't need 10 billion people, James. Your solution of just not having people doesn't We <laughs> really need a plague. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to regret saying that. <laughs> I'm quoting The Office. All right, well... <laughs> Good thing you clarified that. <laughs> I've actually seen The Office, and I didn't know that quote. We need, I think Dwight says that we need a new plague. All right, so where are we at? We're at 50 minutes. I think we should uh, let Soylent thing go. Let's talk about focus. Soylent helps you focus. Segway. Does it really? I hadn't done Meh. It's just good nutrition. Which, if you don't have, yes, you have issues <laughs> focusing. It's a pretty bad segue, let's be honest. No, I, no, I remember when I was... 19, my girlfriend at the time, she just moved and she was unpacking for a while and took her weights on because she had school, she had work and she wasn't eating well. Um, and by eating well, I mean like she ate out every single meal and by eating out, I mean she went to a nice restaurant. She went to KFC. Okay. I disparage her. In our youth, we all were silly and ate horrible things that we didn't know how bad they were for us. Taco Bell. Yes. Taco Bell. And her anxiety grew and grew and grew. And she was extraordinarily stressed. And she mentioned time and again how just she was almost breakdown stress. That was like a vicious cycle. It, it really was. You get stressed, then you eat worse, and then you get more stressed. <laughs> and she was lacking specific nutrients, which you won't even realize that you're lacking because you have no way of knowing that your anxiety is being caused by that. And this reminds me of an example. I believe this came from uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. The example of um, it was a lecture delivered and it it was being delivered by somebody who was also doubled as a hypnotist. Hypnotist asked somebody to come up a stage and said, all right, after I p I'm going to put you into a trance now, okay? You're in a trance. Snaps. S snaps everyone. While he's in the trance, he tells the person, and he lets the entire audience hear this, that when you wake up, when I clap my hands, you will go up, you will stand up, and you open a window. Man stands up, looks around, opens the window, comes back, sits down, and this is very unusual behavior for anyone to do because it's could a lecture. Be a plant, huh? though. I mean, that one guy could be a plant in the audience. No, this is true. This is totally true. Assuming this is not a plant. <laughs> Assuming he's not a plant. Or uh, a... This isn't thinking fast and slow? I, I, I I've read about 30% of it so far. Then it's not from that. If you didn't recognize this, then it's not from there. And then I'm blanking where this could have come from. You think it would be in the first 30% you're saying? Definitely. Oh, okay. No, I don't... This. Oh, this is not bug me where I learned this from. <laughs> well, maybe it'll come to me soon. It's one of those pop side books, so maybe it's fine. Okay. Use Danarelli. Regardless. Well, let's take a little break, pretend it's a sponsor break, to talk about Thinking Fast and Slow, which we highly recommend. And what's great about it is it, unlike pop side books, it's written by someone who won a Nobel Prize <laughs> and is actually, you know, really smart and every chapter talks about research. Continue. <laughs> well stated, James. <laughs> Let's read things by smart people. smart people. Won a Nobel Prize in psychology, which is the topic of the book. They won a Nobel Prize in economics. It was that Krugman? I'm confused. What's Krugman. the difference? No, I'm just kidding. No, he he won the Nobel Prize in psychology. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Excellent. 
the, the hypnotist slash lecturer then asks the individual, what compelled you to open up the window? Man thinks for a moment says, it was cold. Rather, it was hot. Oh, like, because he basically made up a reason? He thought, he, he thought of what was the most likely reason of why I would have do something like that? Why would it, what would compel me to stand up? Well, I was, I was hot, so I opened the window, because that's what I do, having no knowledge. So when we want to rationalize something, it's very, very easy for us to do exactly that. Hmm. That makes sense. Often when people are about to do something, the reason that they'll tell you why they're about to do it is not the same reason as the reason they'll tell you after they do it, why no. they did it. No. Uh, well, as in, yes. There like, is, for instance, people say, oh, I'm going to buy the iPhone because it has a better camera or whatever. And after the fact, actually, that's the thing that you talk about too much. Bad example. Well the, well, the camera, I can see that working because people actually use the camera. It depends on what else is, um, what else is being affected. My concern for her was that she didn't know what was causing it. Mm. And she, was, she felt worse and worse. When you lack these things, you don't realize how much the environment is affecting you. You think, well, something's probably wrong with me. I need some medication. We think, oh, well, how many people have mental illness in, this, in the New York City? Well, like, maybe you guys can hear there's a siren going off in the background. Mm-hmm. These are noises that are 24-7. Mm-hmm. At nighttime, there's no reduction in, this, in the amount of noise. There's no – and for, with piss-poor city planning, you still have garbage trucks passing around, rumbling at odd hours of the night. You have construction crews setting up at 7 in the morning, or rather setting up to get started constructing, building. Here's a pro tip from someone who's gotten several apartments in a city. If you've never lived in a city before and you're just about to get an apartment, make sure that you get one in the back of the building that does not face the street. You should not see a street when you look out the window. If you do see a street, you're going to hear motorcycles and ambulances and garbage trucks all the time. Whereas if you face the back, you don't get a scene, you don't get a sliver of the street. You don't get any sense of nature unless you're facing a park. Uh, yeah. What what bit of nature are you expecting to see in the street? I mean, most blocks in Brooklyn, when you look out the back. Mm-hmm down below is some area in between your building and the building on the other side of the block. And usually there's something growing in there. <laughs> Ebola. <laughs> well, okay. So when I lived in Bed-Stuy, it was trees. Well, I didn't have, it was like an alley in Bushwick. And now it's like this little, uh, it's like a space that people can go down. Like there's like a ramp for like handicap mm-hmm. access. And there's like a couple of trees planted down there. It's mostly cement, like an alley between buildings. But the street's no different. It's not like there's more trees on the other side of the building. <laughs> I, I realized recently, and my roommate pointed this out, and I made the connection after, after he did. Well, I made the connection after he made the statement. Both the places that I've enjoyed living in, mm-hmm. to some degree, um, have a view of nothing else. Like, there's nothing to that other side. My current apartment, I have the Hudson River. So there's just there's no building to one, on one side. Really, I don't have a building on the other side either because I can stare straight out. And though I see lots of buildings, I just uh, see an right. open space. It's a building that takes up the whole block. It's just that there's no other tall buildings right next to it. Right. At least not close enough to block the no, previous yeah. apartment. It well, was, that's the other option. If you're going to get an apartment street side, it has to be high enough up that the sound doesn't reach. But you have to be pretty damn high <laughs> yeah for the sound to not reach but then you also don't hear any of the birds chirping which is a huge problem because you don't hear any kind of sounds this i'll take sl- no sound over ambulances yeah yeah uh, but to this it's these compl- it's this complete lack of the things that for our entire lives pre let's say a hundred years ago yeah we experienced i, I was I think thinking about 200 years 
the Industrial Revolution was well into its uh, effect. But it wasn't that ago. I still want to say it's not that bad. 1914? 19, yes, there's, there's, I mean, the city I'd say wasn't. it's probably quieter now than it was in 1914. But there's just, there's more places for you to go to have gone back then that weren't as developed. I mean, New York City back then was just, it was smaller. Everything was smaller. Yeah. Things were less crampy. If you look at the apartments, there was so much more space. Well, what do you propose? Because I, I think urban living provides so many benefits that the noise angle isn't going to deter anyone. The, I want to say that fundamentally speaking, this noise is incompatible with how we need to live and therefore is destroying us. If we fix that, then city living can be can be amended. I came across this fascinating well, it's getting better. I mean I came across this fascinating TED talk that with, with a fellow who he doesn't address the noise issue, but I'm sure it's part of it. It's Israeli Canadian uh, architect who's built structures across the world for both slums and for both poor sections and for more lavish environments. Mm-hmm. Where he creates ways where there's it has to be green space, has to have light has to be very much open. He's created this really non-traditionally, you know, cylind- uh, rectangular phallic buildings in areas. And they look, I'm curious how this is, how they would hold up to high wind speeds and how, how tall you can really build them. But I'm sure he's accounted for that depending because some things are pretty tall. He's an architect, right? Yeah. So I'm sure he's accounted for that. That's but I'm still wondering how, how that would work. Like, and what would happen if they got caught in a storm relative to a building like we have, like we have in say the Panther district. Right. Okay. There are these elements that we just we forget to consider because we assume that we know best, and we don't we don't even know what we don't know about how much we're missing in terms of what we need in in the city. Right. There are people who are affected, and they blame themselves, and then they take medication to fix something that is caused by a deficiency of something else. Well, that, that comes right back to Kahneman. People who are most likely to misjudge the likelihood of anything really is someone who is a knowledgeable novice, like someone who's not a total noob that doesn't know anything Mm -hmm. but it's like someone who's basically a beginner but Mm -hmm. has done like the people who know just enough to be dangerous Mm -hmm. are like the most likely to be wrong in any subject area because they bring they bring in these preconceived notions which inflates their Mm -hmm. their perception of how how much they know but without enough experience to really judge it like they don't actually know much more than a true beginner who knows absolutely nothing but they think they do. So they misjudge how certain they can be about things. This, and this is the th- element that I always worry I'm, I'm stuck in. And I think the, I guess, pacifying side of this is that, is this quote I always have in the back of my head of the people, the problem with the world is that the people who know something don't have the confidence that people do know something don't, do have the confidence. I think it's a Bukowski quote. The people who really should be saying something, doubt themselves and stay quiet. The ones who don't know are the loudest ones. That sounds right to me. <laughs> it's a, this is something that there's discussion about immigrant families and why they tend to succeed. In, well, some immigrant families, how they tend to succeed. In, it's partially cultural because you, know, you, you come here, you doubt yourself because you're trying to make a name for yourself. Not necessarily from an ego way, but just establishing yourself. Yeah, and you have to always look over your shoulder of whether or not you're doing the right thing, because you can't rely on something else. You have to do yeah. it based entirely off your own merit. That's like the the good practice. What exactly is it? Intentional practice. I can't remember the exact name, but like 
if you're not reevaluating your progress, mm -hmm. it's sort of a variant of you manage what you measure. If you're not reevaluating your progress mm -hmm. every day, then you're probably not making any. There was a great uh, piece that Paul Graham wrote, uh, wrote recently. I'm actually much, I'm confusing whether or not this was Paul Graham writing it or he was evaluating something that Sam Altman discussed in the new How to Start a Startup online class, which mm -hmm. is conveniently. Uh, transcripted on Rap Genius. We'll link that in the show notes. I haven't bothered watching the videos. I just prefer to read it because it's more thorough and I tend to kind I of... I prefer to read over video also. It just... I, I can switch tabs so much more easily when I'm when I'm watching something and I'll just... I'll pay attention and I never really do. Also, the... Uh, something about... Like, all the information is auditory mm -hmm. and your eyes are like... What you're seeing is really not very important to mm -hmm. what you're consuming, the information you're absorbing... And so then your eyes wander and you feel like, oh, I'll do something else at the same time. And then you get distracted. Yeah. And so he discussed how... This doesn't happen with TV shows and movies because the video content is just as important as the audio. And there's but, a changed angle so often that you don't even realize that you're constantly being stimulated to focus on it. Right. Otherwise well, you miss something. Basically, the video is equally important to the experience as the audio. Whereas mm -hmm. with a, a, like a class, when someone's teaching you something, the video part is often... Like, all right, I was watching a typography video, like about typography today. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually, like there, it's about type. It's about something you look at. And even with that, I had a hard time keeping my eyes on the video for like 10 minutes because it was like, they show you some words and they're like, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, leading, or they call it letting, which I don't know. You know those words, when you read it, you read it wrong mm. for like years before you actually hear anyone say it out loud. So anyway letting and they talk about how the proper way to do letting for like five minutes and then once you see the example you're like oh yeah i know what they mean and then you're just staring at some tech like you're not absorbing anything new i don't know the i remember how distracted i was by look trying to observe the people who are teaching an online course i think that's what that's the big issue i want to get back to topic of focus of yeah, course okay. um and the paul graham part well so then quickly go to the paul graham then we'll talk about the people the online class okay he mentioned how with startups, one of the best things that happens there is that you can't fake it. Yeah, yeah. That was a Paul Graham essay. I read it to you. No, but so I wasn't sure if this was, this was one of his most recent ones. Yeah. But he mentioned that it might be based on the comments that Sam Altman delivered. So I'm not sure if it's entirely his own or if it was so. He definitely, it was definitely published on his blog. Yeah. But there I'm was a, at the bottom a thank you to mm -hmm. people who edited it. I don't know. I got the feeling that he wrote it. Yes. Um, I think there was, or maybe Sam Ullman mentioned that and he decided to expound on it. Okay. You can fake it. Any tests or any strategy, strategies you picked up earlier on how to, you know, bribe someone or, or pick a favor or cheat, it's not going to fly because it's only about whether or not people actually enjoy what you're doing. And if after enough time you're tricking people and they don't enjoy what you're doing, then they're going to stop. When you I have think... a terrible moral base, like with Travis and Uber, and yeah. um, the things that they're doing consistently show that they have there's a moral vacuum right with with uber over time if this catches on catches on enough people will abandon the service because they don't feel trusted the same or at least they'll use it the same way they'll perceive the same way they perceive facebook this is a horrible horrible thing we're using it begrudgingly until eventually we'll wane away from, we'll wean ourselves off it i got a weird sense when i read that essay though from paul graham mm -hmm. it was like his main point is you can't fake it. And my when I was reading it, I was like kind of nodding along. And then when I was done, I, I, when I was reflecting on it, I was sort of thinking like you can't fake 
monetary success, which is how Paul Graham measures success of a startup, right? He's an investor. It's like his main metric is, is it a financial success or not? But you can fake the other parts of it. Like when a company is past its prime, they don't suddenly have all their profits evaporate. Look at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And, but so like you can't fake a thing. Like Microsoft was making tons and tons of money. And on that metric, yeah, they're not faking it. But on the, are we actually adding value to the world part? You can fake it. You can fake it for a long time. And this is when you, this is when it's important to admit to yourself what what stage you're in, and whether or not it's time for you to shift away from doing something entirely and realize that you're going to grow. I mean, I, one of the, a lot of things I like to focus on, or at least try to imagine, is building a company is not like so. The best model I can think of in terms of building a company is following the growth pattern of a human baby. In the beginning. There's lots, it's after gestation, that's and lots and lots of care and taking care of the baby. While it's still in a fetus, it's growing, it's being, it's being added to, it's what the parents have put into it. If you have really shitty co-founders, fundamentally speaking, the company initially will be terrible, unless something comes along. If you don't, then it's finally born, it needs to be taken care of constantly. You also have lots of neural pruning. You have neurons that are, you have tons of them and eventually being arranged and refocused, and you mm-hmm. have tons that are, that are fading away. The things that you focus on building out for them, you go through these rapid, you go through these rapid stages of growth, the different kinds of growth that still need to be nurtured. If you grow too quickly, like through puberty, you will develop certain, you have certain kinds of stretch marks. If you grow uncomfortably, if you scale too quickly, if you expand an unsustainable level, mm-hmm. you will do so with lots of growing pains. You need to buy new clothing regularly. I mean, you have to get new employees. You have to, you have to adjust to it. You have to learn how your body works as you grow. Now, I'm imagining somebody I know who's like six foot four who d- did grow, in fact, very, very quickly when he was a teenager. And he had to constantly buy new clothing. It was very uncomfortable for him. He's also not used to using his own body. But eventually you stop growing. That doesn't mean your company is dead. doesn't mean your company is necessarily mature. You are still refining in different ways. But you can't constantly anticipate the same kind of growth. If your entire thesis is, I want growth, you're not perceiving it properly. There's growth that's like a growth is not healthy. Growth that's sustainable, growth that's responsible, growth that's a tumor's growth. Right. Well, to investors, they have a name for a company that's past the growth part. And mm-hmm. like, uh, I don't want to say a name, but they'll say like, I'm buying the stock for the dividends. In other mm-hmm. words, it's not because they're growing. It's because they're making profit every quarter and they're returning that to investors. Sure. Then you wonder whether or not by doing so, they're enabling the company or rather they're disabling the company from from moving forward and doing something else with it and enabling it to just sit on its, on its hands and not do very much. Well, so let's use Apple as an example because it's hard to imagine that Apple could be much bigger, right? They're the biggest company in the world already. They have a gigantic stash of cash. I mean, how how much can a company like that grow? I mean, they're making money hand over fist. Can if they you just wanna... buy Microsoft? That'd be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're making money hand over fist mm-hmm. and you can't grow anymore... Why should investors continue to stay investors? Why should, like, what stops investors from all leaving once all the growth is gone? And if you're making tons of money, I mean, I don't know. There's got to be something. I mean, that's why dividends exist. It doesn't mean that they're going to, they have more money than they know what to do with, right? Like, they Mm -hmm. can't eat, they have plenty of money for research and development. They could be working on a hundred new products and still have tons of cash left over. Which is when I, which is when I would say that we have now, we have gone to such a big stage of a company that it's no longer 
a company? Is this something that could affect the world? I can fix problems with it. And I think this is when there's companies should have a moral imperative to say, to step in and say, just like Bill Gates did with his personal fortune, I'm going to now fix things that are wrong with the world. I'm going to tackle yeah. these projects. And, well, this, okay, whatever. I mean, they kind of are doing that. They're, Apple takes a lot of stands on things which aren't necessarily bottom line related. What well, bottom line? Another, bottom line, again, if we destroy our planet, there's no, no one cares about a bottom line. There's nothing to Right, to focus. and having that much cash enables you to take the long view because you don't have to worry about the short term so much. But yes. another po interesting point about, because I know you don't really like large companies, but maybe through this other lens, I, maybe you haven't thought about it. It's uh, when a company has 100,000 people working for it or 200,000 people working for it, like the company is a, is a person joke almost starts to be like, at that level, it's sort of like a small organism where each human is like one cell. Okay, but I mean, I still, I still don't like that lens because those hundred thousand people—they're not organized in a way that they enjoy being organized. There's well, horrible. I mean, the the cells on the bottom of your foot probably would prefer to be somewhere else. The cells in your body function based off millions of years of evolution. Okay, the way well, we've established our companies is this, is this, is the result of maybe two hundred years of evolution maximum. Uh, okay, but consider this: there are certain organizational structures which have turned turned out to work well and the companies that have adopted them have been able to grow large and companies that have adopted organizational structures that don't scale to large companies have failed which is why okay which is uh, so so it's kind of like for instance like IBM isn't necessarily the organism it's the way that IBM is organized and when you rearrange like if if a company does a reorg it's like they become a different organization organ organism <laughs> I'm sure it's not uh, out, of the, out of the question to link the origin of those boards together. Org Organism. Well, organize is uh, kind of like the uh, the key root thing. Yeah. So focus. When I come, yes. <laughs> I had difficulty focusing on. I was taking Udacity's CS101 course. Mm -hmm. I've tried picking up and put, and I put it down so many times. I was interested in getting to know the person. Which is why I'm always fascinated when a professor shares their individual stories. I love getting to know the people and the professor in the class. What they've done instead with MOOCs uh, is create a course that's just a replication of the visual of the classroom. Just it's just videotaped, mm -hmm. and occasionally have the yes, you have the you have the screen. You click on the screen, you add these. Not 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 much has changed. I want to have that personal interaction, and, and I'm trying to think of how can I. I, d I mean, I don't necessarily agree on what kind of course would work well, but personal interaction is one way to make it work. But I think what personal interaction will do is make you like the professor. I don't think it will make you learn computer science. True. Oh, well, yes. But by, I remember when I was younger, I, I had a math teacher that I loved. I came home one day and said, Dad, I really respect my math teacher. And his callous, so response was, I don't care. Learn the subject. Or something to that effect. Yeah. Where he had, it, no, it, it didn't dawn on him why I would value that I care about professor or teacher i mean it I, makes you more receptive and it makes you less yes. likely to zone it out but at, i mean i think an approach to education that would actually work is more focus on doing like more focus on whatever it is that you're going to be expected to do with mm -hmm. the information is just get right to that i mean technology especially is kind of like a need to know basis for the information it doesn't if I just start telling you all these things and you 
and it's missing the why part, mm-hmm. it's just not very compelling. No, no, you're right. The why is, is massive. And I think that's, I was just thinking, that's one of the reasons why that math teacher really resonated with me. And you can't understand why without actually trying to use it. Like, if I just tell you the why, instead of making you come to the why by your, like, your, hey, solve this problem, and then you go, oh, how am I going to solve this problem? And then someone says, we have this technology. You go, mm-hmm. oh, that's the solution to this problem. You need the why in that form. You can't just be told the why. You have to experience the why. Yes. Why, and go back to Simon Sinek, um, start with why, which is a great TED talk, and I'm surprised it hasn't been a bigger one. It's more of a TEDx talk. There's a certain emotional resonance when you start with why. You go for, why would somebody want to do this? And I realize when I tell my intern, for instance, and I finally got a new one who just proposed to his girlfriend is older than me. I'm the youngest person in the organization. Again, actually I've always been, but I, except when I had my intern, but now I'm still younger, which is always difficult when it comes to cultural stuff. Grow a beard. I'm trying. This is my, this is my idea of a beard. I just can't grow up much more. <laughs> but no, if I shaved, in the, the, when, I did, when I was at the DOE, I did have to shave. And I was not taken seriously very often. I looked so young. I've always thought that looking older is a competitive advantage until you look older than 40. Yes, which is why I know that it's going to be great. I just shave and then I look young again. When my grandfather just turned, is turning 89 this Thursday. He still has some black hair. He's found the fountain of youth. <laughs> some black hair. The fountain of youth. No, no, like his, his arms are black hair. He has some, still has some black hair in his head. He's no silver fox. He has more black hair than, I mean, definitely than Anderson Cooper. People think he's in his mid-60s. Does Anderson Cooper have any black hair? Isn't no. his hair all white? He's a silver fox. But he doesn't look old, really. Like, he has silver hair, but... Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> Continue. <laughs> the TED Talk. The TED Talk. I enjoy... When I tell my intern why he's doing something, I don't know if... I, I don't feel comfortable just telling someone, hey, do this, because I would never want to be spoken to the same way. Mm-hmm. When with that math teacher, he told me why we were doing this, how it could be applied to something really funky. But more importantly, he established his authority and made and 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 earned it. Mm. Which is why I always gave substitute teachers such a hard time when they came in. Because they came in assuming authority. I thought, who, who are you to, to, to declare this over us? Just, just because you are given this does not mean you have earned it. You have to earn this. And I mean, this has always been an issue that I've had with authority figures in general. What's, yeah, that's a hard job. Being, having an authority figure? or No, having, being a substitute teacher. Because yeah. you don't have the time to establish authority. You're expected to, to spe- You're expected to step in and assume where someone who already has established their authority mm-hmm. left off, but without having enough time to establish authority. Group dynamics are so fascinating. Although, no, to be fair, I have met some substitute teachers who did a fantastic job at, at, at these things. Some of them were doing it with anger, which clearly didn't work well for me. Some of them did with, with, with nuance and with just with charm. They came in and they, were just, they showed us tricks. We were looking forward to having some substitute teachers in high school, for instance. In middle school, there was one guy who he had, these, he had some clever jokes. He, had, he was one of the teacher's uh, parents. Mr. Hirsch, I remember he, several years later after I had him, I learned he had a stroke, and that's why we didn't see him around anymore, because I think he was disabled. Uh, yeah. I mean, someone who used to be a teacher for a long time is going to have a lot easier time. They know all the tricks. No, 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 I don't, I don't think he was a teacher. Oh, you said teacher's it, He, Yeah, so one of the teachers in the school, it's, it was her father. Well, how can you be a substitute teacher without being a teacher? Uh, they just hired somebody. It was a private school. 
<laughs> Although I remember at Bronx Science, we had substitute teachers who I don't know if they were always teachers. They're just like just people who stepped in. Eventually, they they got rid of that system entirely, and they just put us into the auditorium and just sat us there, and we just put our thumbs, which is really fun. I guess it was less expensive for the school to just put them into an auditorium, like cattle, to make sure we don't go anywhere. That's nice of them. Focus. That's what school really is. Wait, daycare. Yeah. I mean, up until college, even college a little bit. <laughs> daycare with drinking. Yeah, bottles are just slightly more alcohol content. You're still shitting yourself, especially when you drink, when you have that from that bo- from those bottles. I've been working a couple of projects lately, <laughs> where in the evenings mm-hmm. and during my lunch hour, where so at home I do mo- I'm working on some mock-ups. I'll share what those are for at a later time. And I'm doing some writing, and I realize when I focus on something. Something that I have not done a lot at work because I get I'm in an environment where I'm constantly distracted. There's phone calls, there's people moving around, there's the Panopticon open office, which is just oh. emails popping up. There are things that when I come home, I realize I'm so stressed. I don't know why. And it's because I'm in constant alert. Somebody watching me, overhearing someone else's stimulations from being stimulated by other people. That when I try to focus on something, I am so drained. I've been I've been getting more and more into big picture thinking. I've been thinking most of my time with big pictures, and I have not been narrowing down on little bitty details. At work or out? In or- general, because you know, I spend the majority of my thinking time at work. I come home, I'm a little drained, I might distract myself, or I might go out. I'm going to have presumably more personal inter- interpersonal interactions as opposed to more logical thinking. When I was brainstorming for my idea, it was fantastic. I unplugged from everything, I, I let myself my mind go wild. When it came to actually working the project, I was so, so drained. I was sitting there for, it was 40 minutes and I came out of it and I thought, oh my God, I'm hungry, I'm exhausted. Granted, it was after a day of work, so yes, this is going to happen. But I don't know how people can spend an entire day intensely concentrating, which I know they don't because the best way to work is maybe 40 minutes and then take a break, which no work environment I've been in is conducive to that. At the end of the day, you are drained from what you've been doing all day, like you don't have an unlimited supply of energy. I mean, even setting aside hunger, I mean, I have a hard time going home and working on tech stuff too. Mm-hmm. And like, it's the same stuff I've been doing all day. It's just the marginal <laughs> effort after putting any kind of effort for, I mean, even if I just like go biking all day mm-hmm. and then at 6 p.m., I have a hard time focusing. It's mm-hmm. like, you don't have an unlimited supply of energy. I bet on a Saturday morning, if you set aside a block of time, you wouldn't have the same issue. No, but see, this is where it gets funky. There was a uh, there was a day where I think I had a day off. Mm-hmm. Maybe been a weekend. I started working on it. And I also got the same exact uh, um, draining. Well, sometimes you're. It takes more than just a night's rest to recuperate from. Like if you have days in a row, like multiple, like five days, for instance, of draining activities, you don't just wake up after a good night's sleep on the sixth day and like ready to kill it. That's why people go on vacations. This is true, and that's why people are. I've I've got a whole rant stored up about vacations and why planning every last second of your vacation is exactly the opposite of what you should do. But I don't want to. That's honestly, I've got like a whole hour of rant for that. Let's rant. <laughs> I want to discuss this because I I we feel can do it next week. We can do it next week. No, no, in general, no, no. I think we should. I feel anxious when I don't plan because I assume that the person I'm going with. Or because I've been told to, they have to plan everything. I feel as if I'm doing a bad thing, the wrong thing, by not planning. When in reality, I would prefer to not go to go there and not and just get there and be a little bit of like, well, let's try this today. 
I would like to have some structure. Just don't want to be the one to do it. I, I mean, my ideal vacation plan is attend a vacation where about three to four of the days have like big ish, like high level things. Like you can't go to that place without doing that. And those things are set in stone in their plan and you already bought the tickets. And then you've got maybe five or six days that don't have any plans and you just go and do whatever looks cool. I don't want to feel like it. I don't want to wander around after an entire tour day of touring because I'm too exhausted to wander around afterwards. I just want to stay in my hotel room and, and just pass out. But if I can balance things out, it's people try to cram too much. No experience, no experience, no experience. Let me get more stimulation, more stimulation. No, no, no. You know what's great? Reflecting, calming down, not having to beat around all these other people this entire time. Granted, I'm a full-fledged introvert when it comes to this, but... Maybe that is a factor in why I feel that I do. I don't really like meeting new people very much. <laughs> I do like meeting new people, but, at the, uh, but not the entire day. I also want to just not talk to anybody. I want to take in the environment and meet the locals, not the other people who are, let's party. I don't want to party. No, <laughs> I'm here to meet the locals. <laughs> it's great. Many work environments that I've come across in research are not conducive to actually working. You're expected to sit at your table. You're expected to not move around. You can't really change your location. These are very much, back, going back to the discussion about mental, mental health, unnatural environments that we are not meant to be in. By meant, I mean our biology is such that it's never been in this type of environment. Therefore, if we are in it, we will not be functioning at, at, at peak, peak levels. We're not even anywhere close, close to peak levels. We think we might be, but we're not. Because fundamentally speaking, this is incompatible. Therefore, we can't be. And when a company frowns upon elements of moving around, privacy, privacy, napping, being active, this is a friend of mine had a conversation recently with this company, and he also works at an old company. And he spoke to the CFO. He suggested jokingly um, that the company should get nap pods. To get what? Nap pods. Nap pods. So who said this? The CEO or? The, no, uh, a friend of mine who spoke with the CFO. Okay. They had a conversation planned and then he mentioned this. The, your friend did or the CFO did? The, the, my friend had a conversation planned with the CFO and something else. I'm trying to figure out who suggested the nap pod. Oh, the, the friend, okay. the younger person. Got it. The CFO responded, it's, I already had too much time, too much trouble dealing with telecommuting. But I cannot. Ex- I'm told to accept that napping can be a thing that that's happen that happen in the workplace. His the friend then suggested, would you, would you be willing to read any medical literature on this? Any scientific literature? No, I would not be willing. Somebody has a notion of what work is. It is so antediluvian. In fact, I can't call it antediluvian because antediluvian would imply that it'd be more natural than it is now. It is so antiquated. It is so borderline Taylor. No, is it Wilson or Taylor? Is it Woodrow Wilson? Well, I mean, fundamentally, it's just that they are not willing to reevaluate their worldview. Yes, which is a fun, which is something that I cannot. Which once agree you with. get to that point, it's I don't know. When somebody gets to that point, they shouldn't be in charge of anything. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I agree, um, and, and often they aren't for long. Uh, it depends on how the how the organization is, but there are people. All it takes is for someone to be willing to reevaluate and do the thing that works better. I mean, if the thing really does work better, somebody somewhere is going to do it, and it's going to actually work better, and they'll have a competitive advantage. I mean, it's a temporary situation. Temporary might be ten years, but well, the issue is that people 
you said it's a competitive advantage. People only care about competition. At least this, the only way people respond is that it's a competitive threat. They won't say, oh, we learned from this company that their employees are doing better because they, they, they did this. They don't care. And if it's coming, it's not competitive. It's a competitive advantage in the employer market. So trying when you're competing to get people to work for you. Mm-hmm. As in, like, what kind of perk can we offer? Your friend didn't go work for them, did he? Or she? Well, he, he was already working for the company. Oh. Did he leave? Um, soon. Okay. <laughs> Why? Okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very soon. Um... I'm curious, how do you find focus when you're coding? Because what's your what's your strategy? I mean, do you work on something that's related to the topic? So say you have a really difficult portion mm-hmm. and you're and you're, just, you're burnt out after a little while. You know what? It's funny, but what I normally do when I come up to some code that's hard to think about, mm-hmm. like actually difficult to reason about and not just a lot of work, is I tend to set aside all of my tech and get out a pen and paper and actually work out the problem on paper. <laughs> So you move each. So your strategy is to change environments a little bit, or change thinking environments. It really has more to do with the freeformness of pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Like you can make any mark in any shape in any position very quickly, very okay. quickly, and it doesn't have to. Like there's literally you don't have to conform to anything. The only mm-hmm. like what you lose is copy and paste, which isn't that important when it's like sort of you just mm-hmm. tear off the paper and start again. Like there's so much of get rid of everything and start again that when you do it computer style of get rid of everything and start again, like you basically do control delete and then you're like, Oh shit, Mm -hmm. what did I actually just type? And then you're undoing and redoing. Like you fight with the computer a lot more when it's sort of that creative type thing. So I often find myself just thinking in my mind or working it out on a pen and paper. If it's more like variables than I can hold in my head. I'm going to try that tonight. Um, and also there's a guarantee of no distractions. I promise you, no alert notifications will slide down on your sheet of paper. Vital. <laughs> no battery issues either. <laughs> Can you imagine your pad of paper just vaporizes? <laughs> oh, God. It's the Can freemium. I save? It's the freemium model. <laughs> yeah, right. When I... It looks like 100 sheets, but when you get to the third one, the rest of it goes away. <laughs> There's a great... Uh, joke about Bill Gates and demos and Windows 95. But I'll say that for another time because I want to share this insight. Plus, we have to get going soon. There was a great bit I had today during lunch where I was working a blog post. Mm-hmm. Felt so damn good to be again in a, in a space of... And when I had lunch break, I, was in, like, I went to a private office and there, was, there were no distractions. Didn't hear the phone, didn't hear any people, put my phone on silent, turned upside down. I've wrote about the topic I've been, I've been that's been stewing in my head for so long, and bits and pieces came together from here, and bits and pieces came together from there, and it was just I'm no I, maybe I'm maybe two thirds done. Mm-hmm. I want to say, but there's and I'm trying to cut it down to make it shorter because the topic I originally started writing about then transformed to something else and evolved into big, bigger overarching theme, which is even more satisfying. So I want to just quickly churn something out. Yeah, I was I was chatting with my roommate yesterday. This is the one who's um, director of product management at a, at a company, a startup. And his CEO is, you know, she's regularly on CNBC talking about the internet. She's an like industry leader in, these, in, the, in this. He mentioned how one of the most important things is just to do more. Just Turn it out. More Pe- prolific. Yeah. And I thought to myself, that doesn't seem right. I don't want to just, I thought to myself, okay, I have to write this entry today. As I started writing, I realized, I don't want to just turn this out. I want this to be a fully baked product. I 
I don't actually agree on that. I think being prolific is valuable. Mm-hmm. And especially with blogging, nothing says that if you write a shorter post, you can't expand on other facets of it in f- future posts. You don't have to write an opus and publish it all at once. Like tackle one aspect of it and tackle that thoroughly post. And then if there's another facet that you feel like was not taken care of, another post and deal with that facet. Well, so and so on and so forth. A preview. I'm talking about Twilight and Flux and this and how this is the most important thing anyone because I'm, I'm I'm trying to have a health kick, but then I was trying and then I realized actually this health kick is part of a much larger issue that I really want to discuss. Okay. If I just said, hey, this most important app, I would feel as if I'm bastardizing what I want to write. Well, why don't you write... Uh, so at some level, there's the, there's the distinction of, are you writing it for yourself? Or are you writing it for, to try and like, well, be interesting to read? I'm writing it because I want to have a... Consi- You're right. This is really, this is really good It's question. almost like you should tackle whatever... Take whatever one part of it you can tackle independently. And start that as your foundation. Tackle that first. Then take, and then build on it. You know what I mean? But I feel like that's what I'm doing by writing it in pieces of a whole thing as opposed to publishing separately. Well, if, so in the vein of, if you're writing for someone else, Mm -hmm. I'm going to prep if you are, then you may, I mean, you might want to consider that people don't often, for instance, melting asphalt. The posts are great, Mm -hmm. but I Every single time I read one of those posts, I can't read the whole thing at once. Like your, I, your brain melts. I, no, I never have. An, I never have um, more more than fifteen or twenty minutes mm-hmm. to read a blog post. Like if I'm reading a book, I'll set aside a larger chunk of time. But when I'm just going through my RSS feed, I don't have an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And so what ends up happening is, I read it for fifteen minutes. And then I have to add it to my reading list and come back to it. And usually I have, with Melting Asphalt, I have to come back to it two or three times. Mm-hmm. Well, like, I guess two or three total readings. So I have to come back to it once or twice. I can't read it all at once. And that's frustrating because I feel like I'm, I'm not being – it feels like a single unit that I want to consume all at once, but I can't consume it all at once. And I almost wish that it was broken up. You know what I mean? But, so this, this is where the conflict is. On the one hand, I want to create something that's on the topic of interest that I've been really dedicating myself to. Mm-hmm. And I want to produce content around that. And by producing content, I mean I, as in, like, I want to synthesize the things that I've learned from all these different, disparate sen- areas and combine it together to create a certain thesis. But if I just publish it saying, hey guys, this is, why you should re- this is why you should use this app. Well, don't start with that. Start with something that's more fundamental. The fundamental part is that you guys should use that. This is the most important app you can use. Because if uh, you don't, then your entire life is going to be affected by it. So you- in the process of making that argument, aren't mm-hmm. there sub-arguments that you have to establish first that you could tackle independently? Well, it depends. If I'm not if I'm making an argument at all, I'm just inf- doing an informative post. It's not really, I don't have to make any arguments. Well, if you don't have to, if the reader doesn't need to be convinced of the sub-argument at all, mm-hmm. then you probably don't need to include it. But then the question is, rather not then the question. So the next question I'm wrestling my head with is... Do I, should I instead create content that I'm more proud of because it, it thoroughly references everything I, I feel it needs to reference? Well, that's why I'm saying figure out what's fa- what can stand independently and publish it first because that way the end product still hits all the points and you can refer back to the, the foundation that you've already established. I think this is so what you're saying 
what I'm saying is you can you can publish it in parts and yeah. li- and link back to the previous parts. It doesn't make sense to me yet. Not because there's I just I don't have a mental math for that yet, and I have to get more into blogging for this to refer to for me to understand this. I may very well do exactly that, but for now it seems like I want to give them more. I also don't want to write a, I also don't want to write like a quick short blurb. I don't like short blurbs. Mm-hmm. So I prefer reading articles. There's this fantastic article in is it Aeon or Eon magazine that was the perfect blend of informative and poetic. It was about it was a this nearly seven thousand word as uh, story on Elon Musk, mm-hmm. and it was part of the interview. And it was it was everything I was hoping journalism would be. And every time, every now and then, I, I get these nice little snippets of the New York Times are just also very poetically written. I think this, this is a writer. It's not just a story for the sake of making money. It's, this is this is something here. Mm-hmm. And usually it's not like current events. Usually it's maybe about, it's around something that's been building up over time. That way the person who's writing does not feel compelled to just write something, get it out. Right. And here, it was clear that this person who's writing it very much revered their topic. And I've read some other other articles on this on this site that I was not a fan of. They were really poorly written. Or, they were haphazardly written. That's the hard thing about some websites. And one of them was just completely plagiarized. I remember reading the exact <laughs> study that this person was referencing as unabashedly referencing. Unless maybe he was a person who wrote the study, which that'd be cool, but I don't think it was the same person. Hmm. But even then, you have to still have to, which is really weird. You have to cite yourself as you, so you don't plagiarize yourself, which I think is bonkers. Well, all right. This is my last argument in favor of breaking it up. Because I don't want to say that every topic can be written in a bunch of short little posts mm-hmm. that all connect to each other. Right. But I think that uh, if you haven't written a lot on your blog and you're sort of still dipping your toe in and it's not part of your routine. Oh, making it my routine. It, you might have more success in terms of just getting yourself to actually publish something with not tackling something that requires a 10,000 word article as like your first or second post. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, like this 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 one is looking like it's going to be shorter than the my first blog post, which I convince you to shorten. Yes, which you convince me to shorten because you were right, and several other people mentioned that. Yeah, this just doesn't flow. Like you're giving me a tirade, and you mentioned this very valid point. No one wants to read tirades until I'm somebody whose tirades they want to read. That's true, but usually people whose tirades you want to read, you've read all the previous things, and your wor- worldview has started to sort of absorb theirs. And so all the points in the tirade sort of like you're on board with oh, those. Like right. you only get the tirade only works because you already know all the back history from that person. Mm-hmm. Like people whose tirades pe- other people want to read usually have fans and the people who want to read it are the fans. And usually when one of the fans sends it to you and you're not a fan, you're like, I don't get it. This is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm espousing, uh, I think, I, I think we, this would be a great time to, this would be a great thing to end on. If when you're espousing certain points, what you're doing is you're, if you put your points on a timeline of how you develop them, you're somewhere in the middle. And you're pretty much often, unless you're really targeting your, your segment and your, your audience, you're delivering it to people who are earlier than you in the timeline, which that there's a huge issue there. If you're delivering it to people who are earlier, it's something that I have to work on fixing they won't realize why what you're saying is important. Unless right, they there's, don't have the back history. Yeah. And there's content where you see like, this speaks to my heart. This is, you no know, the, the, you, but then you think, but he's preaching to the choir. Like the E.F. Schumacher book, Small is Beautiful. If I get that somebody else, I don't know if they really understand it because I'm such a 
mental hippie that this is like, yes, I love you. This is what, this is what you've always oh, been preaching. Thank you but for on being the other there. Hand, it's not doing anything to convince you. You're, you were convinced before you started reading it. But to have somebody who expand on these ideas even further and right. yeah. to have a validation. But then, of course, how much validation is something I've been also been doing a lot of journaling, which is a great thing to do. I figured out so many things recently. I will share them with you. As you move towards having these elements of validations, then it's eventually time for you to say, I'm done with the validation. It's time for me to declare my own stuff. Yeah. Which should be synthesis of every, everything else you read. Not just the newest thing you read, but a synthesis of your experiences where you dismiss one thing, you accept something else, you understand the fundamental You know why I write those? I, wrote the, I write those in the notes on the highlights in the book. Like when I read something, I'm like, oh my God, this connects to this other thing. Yeah. I add a note to my, like, I don't know, reading thing mm-hmm. and just type in the thought. I should really go back and expand on those. <laughs> okay. Are we going to call it a show? Yes, let's call right. it a show. Um, let's do book recommendations. So I have one. Yes. <laughs> Um, it, do you want to go first? I just want to make sure I get the author and everything. You know, I'm right now I'm in the middle of, um, reading, rereading the road less traveled by M Scott Peck, mm-hmm. uh, the 25th anniversary edition. And it's, um, I read it in 2012. It's a very, it's written by a psychologist and it's, it's tough. And I have so many things I underline in there and I'm so glad I revisit and I'm so glad I had a hard copy book that I didn't say, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to underline this. And there are notes in there that I don't remember. I don't remember if I left them or some of the person I bought the book from left them there. <laughs> you don't remember if it's your own note? No, no, no. It was like pieces of paper in there. It's like oh, the, as bookmarks, like tiny little bookmarks. Like, did I put them in there? I don't remember if this was me. Um, and I'm all, it's very tough to reread because mm-hmm. I'm analyzing even more. But in terms of just pleasantries of self-analysis, this is one of those books that really jumpstarts it again. Especially if you're wrestling with certain topics and you realize this was the wisdom that helped me out one time. I remember digesting this. I remember how it faded. I'm going to rekindle this. I like this part. And I can now respect myself more. I, I can honor parts of myself. It reminds you like, oh, I did make progress or I didn't make progress. But you also remember what it was that, that called out to you before. Right. Which was, I think, the biggest part. You can sort of, you can either double down or discard it. Yeah. All right. So here's mine. It's Thinking with Type, which is a typography book. <laughs> and it's by Ellen Lupton. Lupton? Lupton? I don't know. And uh, I actually think she'd be cool to get on the show as a guest. Maybe. We'll see. But, Let's um, do it. And then she recently re- released, so the reason I was revisiting this book, as you just did, is because she recently released another book called uh, Type on Screen, which is all about like digital type and fonts and stuff. And uh, I I think that learning about type, learning about words like the actual characters, mm-hmm. makes you a better writer. It's sort of like the uh, a musician can't be a great musician if they don't understand the medium. Like really long songs don't work on the radio. Really great articles, maybe like super, super long articles don't work as on the internet or super, super short ones don't work in books, right? Like you can't release a book with 500 words in it. <laughs> It's also true. And I, I mean, typography is sort of like the heart of the medium. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I just really think that uh, I've gotten a lot of value out of learning about type. Is, are you going to be the next Steve Jobs? No, but he certainly <laughs> got a lot of value out of, I mean, I shouldn't say no. I hope so. <laughs> but he certainly got a lot of value out of it. Yes. But in, in a more direct way mm-hmm. than I'm talking about. All right, folks. See you next week. 
so far, so far.